Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. On Saturday 25th of May, Andrew Bunt taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the first of those sessions, where Andrew looks at the doctrine of salvation. Andrew is the assistant pastor at King's Church Hastings and a regular writer and teacher on various theology topics. Let's take a listen to the session. Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. It's uh, really nice to be with you. I love kind of what you're doing with this School of Theology. It just sounds uh, really exciting and I've talked to various people who've been involved in it in the last few years and just starting to hear how uh, you're finding it a benefit. And I'm very excited to tackle these topics, but slightly daunted as well. I just mentioned to Andy, if you open a standard systematic theology, you won't find a chapter on the doctrine of salvation. You'll find a section which contains you know, six or seven chapters because under that doctrine fall loads of major doctrines. So we've got a lot to cover there. And when we get to Romans, Romans, in a sense, though, isn't one of the longest uh, books of the Bible, but is a complex book. I don't want to say it's the most complex. It's a complex book and is one of the most influential books in church history and on Christian theology. So there's an awful lot for us to to dive into. So I guess the encouragement is see this morning as a introduction and overview and hopefully it's going to whet your appetite a bit to go away, to think a bit more deeply, to wrestle with different parts of these topics. And really the reason I thought we'll do the doctrine bit first and then go into Romans is I think we'll do the doctrine of salvation first, we can get a good kind of um, overview, the big picture view as it were, and then when we get to Romans, as we work through the text together, we'll be able to see how that big picture is uh, in evidence there. I think it's quite a good way around of doing it. We're going to get some broader structure from the whole Bible and then see how that actually works out in the book of Romans when we get there. So let's start off with salvation. And actually, the first question I think to ask is just, what is salvation? I remember a few years ago being asked by a really lovely um, couple in a church I was serving up north, who had been Christians for probably 40 years. And they said to me, have you ever really thought about what are we actually saved from? I thought, excuse me? And I was kind of amazed they were asking this question. But we talk about salvation so much, and we think it's a bit kind of Christianity 101, a bit basic that maybe we don't really dwell on actually what we're talking about when we talk about it. So salvation, obviously, is talking about being saved or being rescued or being delivered from something. And if you look through the Bible, you'll find the concept of salvation applied very broadly to all kinds of situations and circumstances. Salvation can be from illness. It can be from other nations. It can be from enemies, even kind of individual enemies or corporate enemies of the people. It can be from dangerous situations. The word salvation is used for being saved from things like drowning. Um, And it can be used from situations like slavery or like oppression. But obviously, primarily, when we talk about the doctrine of salvation, we're talking about the ultimate rescue, the rescue from sin and the rescue from the judgment that we should deserve from sin. And in many ways, all those other things the Bible talks about salvation from are kind of an outworking of the effects of sin anyway. So at base, salvation is about being rescued from sin and about the wrath of God that we deserve for sin. So salvation is about being saved from sin, both its power, the power it holds over us, and we'll see a lot about that in Romans 6, and about the punishment that we should deserve for it. Uh, Salvation is from sin, 
And then salvation is also for something, though. It's out of something and into something else. So salvation is for relationship with God. It's not kind of you're taken out of that situation to then go off and do whatever. Actually, no, it's brought into something new, into a relationship with God. Um, and in a set, uh, salvation is from sin. It's into relationship with God. And so you can really say that salvation is at each stage, it's from God. Salvation is actually being saved from God, because it is God's wrath that we're saved from. Ultimately, we are saved from God's punishment. So yes, we're saved out of slavery to sin. Yes, we're saved out of a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. But actually, it's God we need saving from, because it is right and just that he judges and punishes our sins. And we're saved for God, for relationship with him, and we're saved by God. At each stage of the process, each part of salvation actually comes from, actually is linked to God. And salvation is completely the work of God. Well, see as we go through, salvation is a gift of God to humans, rooted in who he is, not in who we are, and not in anything we do. Which is why I thought actually it's also important to think about salvation and God. Because if you go through the Bible, you find that the doctrine of salvation is very much linked to who God is, to the doctrine of God himself. And you find that salvation is the distinguishing feature of the living God, or the God of Israel, the God of the Bible. The thing that marks out the real God compared to other gods is the fact that he can and he does save. So one example I've got out here is Isaiah 43, verse 11, where God says, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no saviour. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. He said to them, I'm the real God, I'm the living one, and I am the one who is the saviour. There's no saviour apart from me. The thing which marks him out is he is the God who saves. And then it's not surprising that on the flip side, you find often an accusation against false gods is the fact that they can't really save. Often, actually, that's kind of put in quite kind of mocking, scathing ways, you know, let your idols, let your false gods save you. So Isaiah 46 says, Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. They fall down and worship. Talk about making a literal idol you worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place and stand it there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. He's saying, actually, this thing can't save you from your trouble. You can cry to it, you can pray to it, do what you want, but it can't save because it's not a real God. Or Jeremiah says a similar thing. Jeremiah 2, he says, but where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. He's saying you've made so many gods, you've got as many gods as you do cities. Well, then let them save you. If you want them, then trust in them. And the whole point being, they're not going to be able to do it. The distinguishing feature of a fake God is the fact they can't actually save. And then also we find salvation is so much what the living God does that he can can be said to be salvation. It it kind of is the epitome of who he is. So Exodus 15, which is the song Moses sings after the great acts of salvation and God rescuing the people from Egypt, starts off, The Lord is my strength and my son, and he has become my salvation. He is salvation. This is my God. I will praise him. My Father's God. I will exalt him. Or in a very different context, in a different tone, Psalm 42.5 says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. 
He is my salvation. Salvation is so much what the living God does that he can be said to be salvation. A core to understanding really who the God of the Bible is, is recognising that he is one who saves. And we're going to see this flows from who he is. And that's the next bit. Salvation flows from who God is and it reveals who God is. So to really see what God is like, we look at how he acts and primarily we look at what he's done in salvation. Because you see, God, by the nature of being God, has to judge and punish sin. By the nature of being God, he has to act justly. He has to, has to be a just judge, which means enacting justice by punishing sin. He has to pour out his wrath against sin. That's the right thing. It's an obligation upon him as God. And there's actually no comparable obligation for him to save. In a sense, the right and fair thing for God to do is to judge and to punish all people. There's no obligation for God as God to save. And yet, because of the heart of God, because of the type of God he is, because of how he is, he does save. And so you get that classic Old Testament description of who God is, which talks about the fact his heart is kind of orientated towards wanting to save. He's a God merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressing and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And notice the imbalance. He's gracious, merciful, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity to the thousands. And he does enact justice. He does judge sin to the third or fourth generation. And the numbers aren't made to be precise. The point is, God is, in his heart, he's orientated towards wanting to save. He's orientated towards being gracious and merciful, even while he's the just judge. So even though God doesn't have to save, actually he's such a good God in his core of his being, he wants to save and he chooses to save. And those words are obviously really key in the Old Testament. When the people uh, kind of become rather fearful after the spies have gone into Canaan in, uh, in Numbers, and God's again thinking, I'm going to give up with the people, I'm going to start again with Moses. Moses says, no, no, but you're a God who's gracious and merciful. He, he argues with God based on who he is, because he knows that salvation will flow from who God is. Or one of my favourite verses, actually, in Nehemiah 9, Nehemiah is praying on the ground with the rededication of the, the temple and the city, and he kind of remembers the different failings of Israel, but then he summarises his words, he says, but you are a God ready to forgive. Some translations say you're a God eager to forgive. That's literally one of my favourite statements in scripture. Thank goodness that God is a God who is eager, ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and so did not forsake them, did not forsake the rebellious Israelites. Salvation is uh, an outworking of the heart of God. It reveals what type of God he is. And salvation is always rooted in who God is, and what he's like, never in who we are or what we do. So God saves because he is loving and gracious and merciful, not because we are worthy of it or anything like that. So a classic Old Testament example in Deuteronomy 7, where Moses is talking to people of Israel and talking to them about why God has chosen them as the people he's rescued and the people who are going to be his people. He says this rather kind of tautologist thing of saying he loves them, basically he says he loves them because he loves them because he loves them. He says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. So it wasn't because you're big in numbers and strong, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand 
and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. He's deliberately alluding to that classic um, uh, description of God. But notice, it's not because you're more in number that the Lord set his love on you. He says it's because the Lord loves you. He said God loves you because he loves you because he loves you. It's not about who you are. It's about who God is. Or you can see the same in Ephesians 2. God rescues there. God brings new life because he's rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. It's not God raised you to new life with Christ because he thought actually there's a bit of potential in you or because he thought you've done a few good things. No, no. It's because of the great love with which he loved us. It's rooted in who he is. Or 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's called us to be born again to a living hope. It's his mercy, it's him, it's who he is that salvation flows from. And then, kind of because of that, it's in what God does in his great acts of salvation that we see what he's really like. If you want to really see what God is like, then think about, dwell on what he's done in his acts of salvation, and that reveals to us the heart and character of God. So, 1 John 4 kind of summarises this. Anyone who does not love God, who does not love, does not know God. Because God is love. And in this, the love of God was made manifest. It kind of went public. It was shown among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, we'll come back to that word later, for our sins. He's saying God, the core being of God, it is manifested, it's displayed, it's, it's put on public display for us in what he does in his son. When we see God's acts of salvation, we see what he is really like. And we kind of know in life, don't we, you, you really get to know what someone's really like by how they act. It's all about what they say, and their words are one thing, but actually we know it's actions speak louder than words. In God's acts of salvation, we see what he is really, really like. And then finally on the salvation in God, salvation is ultimately, it's kind of final end goal, final purpose, it's for God's glory. So yes, God saves us because he loves us and he wants us to find fulfilment in life with him. But ultimately, the reason for that is for his glory. Everything that God does is for his glory It's because he is deserving of praise and worship. It's to show how wonderful he is so that people would recognise that and we would, in a sense, kind of reflect that back to him in worship, in a life of worship. And we'll see as we get on to some of the other parts of the doctrine later that that's a really important thing for understanding certain elements of how the doctrine of salvation works. That God's overriding aim and purpose in everything he does is his glory. It's to reflect back his goodness. And that is the reason he saves. So you see it with a key example of um, salvation in the Old Testament with the Exodus. They are um, taken out of Egypt to go and worship him. He says to Moses, lead the people back here so you can serve me, you can worship me on this mountain. He talks about the fact that Pharaoh is raised up ultimately to display the glory of God, or Paul talks about that, looking back on it, to display the glory of God. Or you go to Ephesians 1, where there's an amazing kind of hymn of all these uh, spiritual blessings we receive in Christ. And three times this is repeated refrain, it's to the praise of his glory. The reason we're uh, chosen, the reason we're redeemed, the reason we're adopted, all these things, it's to the praise of his glory. All of it ultimately is to point back to God, to show who he really is and to lead to him being glorified, to him being worshipped. 
So salvation as a doctrine actually is very much linked into who God is. It's where we see what he's really like and it flows from who he is. And then I think a bit about salvation in the Bible story, which to be honest is because I'm a biblical studies guy more than a systematics guy. So my bias is always want to get a bit of biblical theology in there. But I also think it's important, there's a real risk with the doctrine of salvation and the stuff we'll come on to, of we think very much in a kind of... Um, and our position, and almost like a, a kind of vertical, and we completely forget the historical. And actually we forget there is a story in the Bible, there's a story of salvation, not just an experience of salvation we can have now. And I don't think I'll run through this in full what I put in your notes, just because of time, but just to point out that you know, the story of the Bible, you know, runs from Genesis to Revelation, 66 books, but a, a narrative thread going through, is ultimately a story about salvation. It's a story about God's passionate quest to save us from the mess that we caused in Genesis 3 and to bring us back into relationship with him. And so you see that in Genesis 3, in the promise that when everything's gone wrong, there's this promise as God speaks to the serpent that the, um, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That actually this thing is going to be kind of undone, it's going to be dealt with. You see even those early chapters of Genesis, God is a God of salvation in Genesis 4 to 11. Because you know, when Cain goes and murders his brother, God saves him by putting a mark on him which protects him. When, uh, when the flood comes, God saves Noah and his family. He's, he's always a God of salvation. All the way through the story, you see, actually, even though he doesn't have to, this God is so amazing, he saves. You see a key moment, obviously, in the call of Abraham. The promises made to Abraham are a promise to restore what was lost when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. They're a promise of salvation, of being rescued from the punishment that we as humanity had received and being brought back into the relationship we were created for. You then get the Exodus, which is the, you know, the epitome of salvation in the Old Testament, the key salvation event. But actually what's really interesting in the Exodus, they are saved from the slavery they've experienced. They're then able to be free as God's people. God makes the covenant with them. There's, there's a level of fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. But what you notice in the Old Testament is there's been that physical salvation, but there wasn't a heart salvation. Because as you go through the story, you find that even though God has graciously provided for this relationship, he's given them the law, all these kind of things, you find humans are unable to keep the law. They're unable to keep their side of that bargain in the Mosaic covenant. And so there's a partial salvation, but there needs to be a greater salvation. Something deeper, something bigger needs to happen for this to actually work. And so it's not a surprise when we get to the prophets, when actually we found that humans can't do what they need to do, that God starts to speak about a new covenant and a new heart, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and the law being written on hearts, hearts of stone turned into hearts of flesh. There's promises of salvation, which isn't just an external thing, but now it's going to be an internal thing. And then, of course, that gets enacted with the coming of Jesus. And the salvation we enjoy in him, which is what we'll get into in just a moment, is a salvation which changes us internally. It changes the heart. It restores us to God. It is the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. We're God's people. We are God's place. We are now the promised land. We're where God dwells with his people. And we receive God's rule and blessing. He's our God. We are his people. And of course, the consummation comes when Jesus returns. And there's the, the kind of um, full realisation of that salvation as we enjoy eternity in the new creation with um, Jesus. The whole Bible story is the story of God's mission to save, uh, his determination to do it. And so I think it's just good to keep that in mind as we now go to salvation for us as individuals and the kind of quite systematic way of looking at it, that actually there's a wonderful story of salvation that reveals the heart of God 
through scripture. Any questions on those two bits before we do a quick activity? Right. Sorry? Any questions? That was a brave question. Oh, is that a brave question? Oh, okay. <laughs> well, as of yet, not, that's fine. On the next slide, oh, slide. If we said that, I've got a few um, statements just for you to discuss in your groups. Just discuss true or false for these statements which come into what we're about to discuss. Um, so have a quick discussion. Do you think they're true? Do you think they're false? And then talk about why do you think that's the case? And then hopefully most of the answers will come kind of as we go through um, the next section. So let's just take four or five minutes uh, discussing those in our groups. I'm, uh, I'm not going to ask you to uh, put your hands up or anything or, or say what you concluded. Hopefully, I think most of those get answered as we go through. One of them might not actually. might have to uh, come back to one of them. I think... I'm just checking I've got the right answer. Yeah, I think that all of those are false. Um, oh, <laughs> so um, <laughs> you'll see why as we go through, we can discuss them a bit as well, probably in some Q&A as well. So we're now moving on to salvation and the individual, because we've done a bit on kind of, well, about salvation in God, what about salvation in the Bible story, which in many ways is quite the kind of corporate understanding of how God works in salvation. But now we say, how does an individual in our day and age, during the church age, this period of the Bible's big story, come to experience salvation? And when you ask that question of a theologian, as theologians like to do, they'll give you a bit of Latin. And they'll tell you it happens to the ordo, uh, ordo Salutis, or the Order of Salvation, which is a sequence, really a logical sequence, rather than necessarily a, like a chronological temporal sequence of steps which seem to be, uh, or which kind of come as you do a kind of synthesis of what the Bible teaches about how salvation is applied to us, how we as an individual experience salvation in God. And actually the idea of this order of salvation does come from Romans. We'll see it as we go through. There's a point in Romans 8 where he's actually reminding them they can know that in the face of suffering, God is always good because they can look back at what God has already done. And in the looking back at what God's really done, he gives this list of kind of um, the stages or the sequence of blessings they've received in salvation. And um, that kind of gives us the initial structure for this order of salvation. That's Romans 8, uh, 28 and 29, or 29 and 30, which is what we're going to work through now. So he says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And it gives us kind of the broad structure. And then actually theologians put a few extras in there as well. So actually we find the order, which is sometimes a pretty different order, but the kind of most common is election, calling, regeneration, conversion, justification and adoption, all of which <laughs> we're going to try and do this morning. And then sanctification and glorification, which will come in later sessions. You've got, I think, a session of sanctification and a session on eschatology, which is where glorification will come in. So we're going to try and zip through, and again, remember we're introducing the topics here, opening a load of cans of worms, probably, um, in each one of these. We start with election, which I define as God elects some people to be saved, not based on anything in them, but based on his free choice. And in this way, salvation starts completely and entirely with God and in God. It is him who is the initiator. He is the starting point. Salvation starts for an individual because of what God does, because of God's decision. And we're going to see this as we get to Romans 9 to 11. 
Romans 9 to 11, Paul is wrestling with some very big questions about, based about why his Jewish contemporaries, many of them haven't trusted in Jesus as the Messiah. And it becomes this question of why do people believe in Jesus and why do people not believe in Jesus? And over these chapters, as we'll see in more detail later, Paul basically says there are two parallel reasons. One reason is God's choice, how God elects and how God doesn't elect. And one reason is people's unbelief, their choice not to respond to Jesus. And Paul basically doesn't say these are how the two things fit together. He says this is true and this is true. And they're like parallel lines, train tracks, and both of them are true. And we kind of have to hold both of them as true to understand um, what the Bible says. And he is clear that part of what's going on is that God has elected certain people for salvation. He gives some examples. So in uh, chapter 9, verses 10, he talks about Jacob and Esau, the sons of... Yeah. Is it possible to hold two beliefs on one issue? I believe so. Because my theory is we shouldn't be able to understand God and everything he says. So there should be things we can't rationally understand because we're the creatures and he's the creator and therefore when the bible says this is true and this is true the way for us the closest to understand what is true is to hold to both even if we can't bring them together which as i say, i don't think should be surprising when we're talking about the things of god as those who are created by god so i think there are a few places in theology actually where the trinity is the same logically impossible but these things are all true and there are three statements i'm not doing the trinity so i won't do them but the three statements you have to believe to hold as close as you can to what the Bible teaches in the Trinity, I think. We'll get there more in Romans 9 to 11, so we can kind of come back to that. He uses the example of Jacob and Esau, the children of um, Isaac and Rebekah. He says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, so it can't be based on what they've done, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she, Rebekah, was told, the older will serve the younger, i.e. God chose Jacob over Esau. And he says that happened before they were even born. They hadn't done anything, let alone anything good or bad. It can only be God's election that actually made that happen. Romans 11, he's wrestling with this question, I said, of why so many of the Israelites of his day haven't believed in Jesus. And he says, well, what then? He says, well, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect did obtain it, but the rest, he says, were hardened. He says, clearly, the reason that some have responded to Jesus is because they were elected. It's something that God has done. God has started. You see elsewhere in Paul. Ephesians 1 uh, talks about, uh, he blesses God. He says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus. Again, it's before the foundation of the world, before we've done anything. It must be a free choice. Or 1 Thessalonians 1 Paul is writing, open the letter, saying the reason we know that God has chosen you is because you responded to the gospel. He says, we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also empowering in the Holy Spirit of full conviction. The evidence that someone is chosen by God is that the gospel comes and they respond, that actually it has power in their lives. And it's not only a kind of Paul thing. You see in Acts, Paul and Barnabas are preaching to the Gospels. And Luke says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Slightly different language, appointed to eternal life, but the same concept. 1 Peter 1, Paul, uh, Peter writes to the elect exiles. Those who have been elected, those who have been chosen. Later, 2.9, says they're a chosen race. In Revelation, you find that the beast is allowed to um, kind of have some level of authority on earth, and all people on earth worship it, everyone, we're told, whose name has not been written 
before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. I.e. there are some people who before the foundation of the world, their name was written in the book of life of the Lamb. There was a choice before even creation. And this obviously is a hugely um, controversial, debated Christian doctrine. There are very different views among Christians on this, and there are objections to this viewpoint. So let's just very quickly run through a few of these. One of the biggest objections to the kind of perspective I'm putting forward is that actually this understanding of election completely um, takes away and destroys free will. People say, well, how can someone have free will if actually it's all determined by what God has um, chosen? Which is a very complex topic linked to the wider topic of how can it be that God is sovereign and for us to have some freedom, which again, the Bible seems to say two things there. The Bible says that God is sovereign over all things, nothing happens that he is not ordained to happen, and yet humans are held morally accountable for their choices. We make real choices, we're held accountable. Again, two things, don't logically go together, the Bible says both of them, that's fine, it's God, we shouldn't expect to understand it, we hold both of them there. So we have to kind of define the extent of freedom that we have by scripture, not by what we want or by reason. And often that's where the problem comes. We assume we have free reason, and we assume that means completely free choice to do whatever and no control on it. That's not the biblical picture of freedom in my reading, I think. Scripture does show that we make real choices, that our real choices have real effects, and that therefore we are responsible for those choices. You see that in the very fact that we're held culpable for our sins, and in the fact that we're called to respond to the gospel. There's a call to take an action. We are to do something. We are to uh, make a choice in that. But that doesn't mean that God can't in some way be behind those choices. Scripture suggests, I think, clearly that he is. God's in control of everything. And actually, God is in control even of our desires. So it's not that we uh, kind of are robots who choose things without wanting them. We do what we want. But actually, even our desires are shaped by God. So it's not an unwilling response. People who respond to the gospel aren't willingly, unwillingly responding. People who don't respond to the gospel aren't wanting to respond but unable to. Actually, God works deeply on the level of what we even want in order to bring about his purposes. So theologians here talk about a compatibilist understanding of God's sovereignty and our freedom. Is that idea of God is in control, but actually it's at a deep level so that actually we also do what we want. We also make those um, open choices. And so election doesn't destroy human free will if we understand free will and human will kind of as the Bible seems to actually define it and seems to explain it. We make real choices, but actually none of us is completely free in that sense. It's just not the biblical picture of what it means to be a human. Another objection to the viewpoint I've put is the idea that election is based on God's foreknowledge of our faith. So this is actually a way of preserving the idea of free will. It's actually, yes, we're chosen by God, but that's because he already knew who'd have faith in him. So it's not actually, it's kind of put upon us. He knew how to respond and therefore he elects us in. And even that verse in Romans 8 is used for that. So it talks about God foreknowing, which people think, well, that means that God foreknows in advance the decision that people will make. There's a few problems there, though. One problem is that the foreknowledge is clearly of people, not of a decision. Romans 8.29, those whom he foreknew. It's a personal word, it's a people thing. Romans 11.2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. It's not that he foreknew they'd make a decision, he foreknew them. And actually, biblically, the language of knowing is often used very relationally. 
That's why in the Old Testament it's been used for sexual activity. It's a, it's a relational um, word. It's used for God's relationship with his people. Amos 3.2, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Obviously he knows about everyone, but known in a relational sense, only God's people, Israel, had he known in that way. And so this foreknowledge isn't a kind of knowing what response someone will make, knowing about the faith in advance. It's uh, setting his love upon is kind of what that means there. And of course, if God chose us based on faith he knew we'd have, that would make salvation based on something we do, not based on something God does, which goes against the entirety of clear biblical teaching about salvation. Sometimes people say, well, God elected a group. He elected those in Christ. But I don't think that works either. If he elected an empty group, then he didn't re-elect anything. He kind of elected a container. And again, that's not the kind of personal election the Bible clearly talks about. Um, And actually, if it's not empty when he chose it, then he's still electing individuals. Because if you elect a group and the people are already in the group, you are electing the individuals by electing the group. I I don't really feel the group thing helps. Um, And so this is why theologians talk about unconditional election. That God's choosing is not based on any condition that we meet or anything like that. It's unconditionally, freely, his choice that he makes. Yeah, please do. It's a bit mind-boggling. But God, right, in his love and mercy, yeah. you know, uh, through Jesus, um, <clears throat> my understanding was that he, in election and predestination, uh, our commission is to go out and preach the gospel mm. to all the world, and then the end will come. So, everybody, he loves everybody, and he... He wants everybody to hear the good news and the gospel. And then it's entirely whether that person receives Jesus mm-hmm. or he doesn't. Or isn't it as simple as that? It's both and, I think. <laughs> so yes, it's entirely whether the person receives Jesus. But I think biblically that is determined by the eternal decree of God. Which actually comes to the very next point. Because the very next point, the next objection is, but the Bible says God wants all people to be saved. And people say, well, how can the Bible say that God chooses some uh, and, and only some if actually also says he wants all people to be saved? How can that go together? Which I think is kind of what you're saying. How can God say, go and preach the gospel to all people and we want them all to respond? If, yeah. And so I think the answer to that is <clears throat> we all agree that God could save all people. All Christians agree God could save all people. Pretty much everyone agrees. Most um, evangelical Christians agree God doesn't save all people. So the question becomes, why? And there's two options. It might be that God doesn't save all people in order to maintain free will. So actually, he says, no, I'm not going to push this upon people. And so actually, the reason not everyone gets saved is because some people don't choose to come to Christ and salvation. That's one option. Or it might be that God doesn't save all people because in some way, he knows that will bring more glory to himself in the long term and his concern is about his glory. And so everyone agrees. The, the agreement is God could save everyone. He doesn't save everyone. There must be a reason the option is, is it because of preserving free will or is it because of his glory? And so then the question becomes, which one, biblically, is most strongly supported? And I think very much the biblical answer is God's glory, not free will. There's just not much talk of free will in the Bible, frankly. Uh, it's, you know, we kind of play it up, and that's the very cultural thing for us, all kind of reasons why we like free will. It's just not a big theme. Moral culpability is. So actually, I think there is clear indication, especially in Romans 9, where we get to, that the reason God chooses some and not others is for his glory. That in some way that will bring more glory to him. And that is God's, rightly, God's ultimate motivating aiming everything he does. Um, 
that this way. And Romans chapter uh, 9, verse 16 and 16. For he said unto Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So that it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Which you think supports what I'm saying? or? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Romans 9 is one of the key places, absolutely. I'm going to say we'll get to there. And uh, yeah, it's helpful, thank you. That's exactly, I think, what he's saying in these things. Let's just get to the end of the lecture and we might take some more questions. Because, of course, you can say that. You can say, okay, that's wonderful. But then that does imply God hasn't chosen some people. What about that? What about reprobation is the words we use there? Does this mean God chooses some people not to be saved? How does that kind of work? Well, I think as we look at what the, the Bible says, the various texts on it, we find that God... There is the implication that God doesn't choose some people, but he doesn't explicitly choose people for damnation in the same way he chooses people for salvation. There is what theologians really helpfully call an asymmetrical, so a not equal relationship between election and reprobation. So there's clear evidence that people, that the decision is made in advance. So Romans 9.29, what if God desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. He says there are vessels that are prepared for um, destruction. We just heard these verses just now from a friend here, that he'll have mercy on whom he has mercy, he'll um, uh, harden, what's he has to say, sorry, harden whom he'll harden. He uses Pharaoh as the example. In the Exodus story, he hardened Pharaoh, that was God's action for his glory, for his purpose. Um, 1 Peter 2.8, he's talking of people who don't believe in Jesus, he says, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. There clearly is a, a foregone conclusion here. But the Bible doesn't talk about reprobation in the same way it talks about election. Salvation is an act of God. He elects, he saves by grace. It's unrelated to our actions. But condemnation is always linked to the human choice. It's always linked to the results of sin. It's our choice, in a sense. It's God's... It's a, sorry? Again, hello. Is that not dice? I think his question is if God has ordained our salvation or lack thereof, what, to what extent do we then have the free will to do an act that causes condemnation? Is that your question? I don't. If God is. Say again? So if we don't have, if we've not been ordained to be one of the yeah. elect, what how much free will do we have to not then be condemned? None. Which was, I think, the question. Okay, yeah, I think. Yeah. These, these are hard truths and hard intellectually, hard emotionally sometimes actually as well. But, but, but what I'm saying here is that where the Bible says that God saw you in advance, he said he's loving you, he picked you out, he's destined you for salvation, it doesn't say the same way for being destined for destruction. And that is important. There's an asymmetrical thing um, in that, and therefore it's of course important that the Bible is really clear, God doesn't rejoice over the destruction of the wicked. It's not what he wants, it's not what delights his heart. Yeah. Would you say then that the Bible is in more support in Do you want to? <laughs> so it's to do with the logical order of God's decrees. Yeah, it's to, do, it's to do with when God made the decree of who would be saved in relation to the fool which then comes in, we won't go into this in detail because I'm not qualified to, um, and then comes into to what nature does double predestination work and stuff. Um, I don't have a good answer. 
I find infralapsarian ancestors so confusing. <laughs> uh, and yeah, comes in some other doctrines as well. Sorry, so I'm completely not answered that question. Um, so what, the point I'm trying to make is there is this asymmetrical relationship. So the way the Bible talks about the fact that some aren't chosen is different from the way he talks about the fact that some are chosen. And again, these kind of things, I think we have to humbly say we accept what the Word of God says. We can't understand it intellectually. Often we can't understand it emotionally. But here it is, and we're going to kind of seek to, to hold to that as best we, we can, really. Mm, that won't happen. Exactly. That's the whole thing of compatibilism. God works deep down in our desires. So it's never going to be the case of, yeah, exactly, you want to do it, but you can't. That's just not going to happen. That's one of the reasons we have an issue with God's sovereignty. We don't understand the depth to which God controls all things. We can have quite a surface understanding of that, such that there might be a clash between our wants and God's plan. That will never happen, because actually our wants are shaped by God's plan. Very complex, but that, I think, is the way the Bible um, addresses it. Not initially, but then, then God changes his heart, absolutely, and we'll come to that very much. Let me say then, could we should move on, how do we view election? Because often it's a thing we kind of avoid as Christians, we're quite uncomfortable with it, there's all these great complexities, we've just kind of began to explore there. But actually the New Testament views it really, really positively. The New Testament sees the fact we've been elected before the foundation of the world as a reason to worship, a reason to give thanks to God, because of nothing in us, God saw you before he created anything, and he said, I'm going to set my love upon you. And even though you're deserving of wrath and condemnation, I'm going to love you and save you at the cost of my very own son. That is a reason to worship. It gives us confidence because if we know that God shows us, we know that he will see us through to glory. That kind of listing Romans 8, the whole point is if you start on the journey because God foreknows you and predestines you, you know you'll get to the end to glorification. There's a, a security it can bring. And obviously that's a helpful thing, 1 Thessalonians, you know you've been chosen if you truly respond to the gospel. So if the gospel has truly worked in your heart, you've truly responded to it, you know with absolute certainty you will reach glory with Jesus. And there's fuel for mission. People sometimes say, well, the doctrine of election makes us lazy in mission. I think it's the exact opposite. Actually, it's a real encouragement in mission because it means actually we preach the gospel, but actually the response is in God's hand. So all we have to do is discharge our duty of preaching the gospel. That's why it's preach the gospel, which means proclaim. You're a news reporter. You're announcing what's happened. It's not argue the gospel. It's not convince about the gospel. It's not persuading, you know, be a great philosopher. It's tell people what's happened, and then God works in their heart. Mission in that sense is very easy. And actually, when we do that, we've discharged our duty. If someone responds, wonderful. If someone doesn't, our heart breaks. But actually, it's not our fault, and we're not to carry the kind of the guilt of that. It, this makes mission easy in a sense and very doable that God invites us to partner with him in that. I think we do feel responsible for that's false. Yeah, yeah. So we need to fight against that. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, very good. You take it back to God and you cry out to God. God, the gospel's being proclaimed with you work in our heart. Um, let's, absolutely. Let's do one more part of this chain before we break. The next one in that chain in Romans 8 is calling. Which is where God works in someone's heart as they hear the gospel, such that they respond in repentance and faith. So Romans 8.29 says, Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And notice in that chain that if you've been predestined, you will be called. And if you've been called, you will be justified. Which must mean there's something in this call which makes something happen. It's not just a kind of calling you can or 
you know, you can respond or not. It's not calling your dog in the park and they may or may not return to you. This is a call where you know it will happen. You know it will um, have an effect. And so theologians distinguish between the general call and the effectual call, which is a bit about what we've been discussing down here. The general call is when the gospel is proclaimed in words and is heard by human ears, and that kind of goes out to everyone. Everyone can hear the, the general call. But then the effectual call is a call which has an effect. It works in a heart that as the heart hears the gospel, actually the Holy Spirit works such that the heart responds to the gospel. It is a, it's a call which is um, active. It takes hold of the heart. It works something. It changes us and works in us. So the kind of various places we see this. Jesus himself says in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He says, just hearing the words isn't enough. God has to do something in the heart. There's an effectual call. Or in 1 Corinthians, Paul's opening the letter, he's reminding them of the certainty that God will sustain them through to glory, through to the end. And he says to them, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You can know you'll reach that point because God called you. He worked in your heart. When 2 Thessalonians, Paul says, to this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're called through the gospel. God works through the gospel to call, to work in a heart. And so, again, I think there's some encouragement in mission here. We do the general call bit, and it's up in God's hands to do the um, effectual call bit. And let's do regeneration while we're here, because that's actually the other side of the coin of um, calling. God causes a person to be born again, receiving new spiritual life, such that they will turn to God for salvation. The Bible's really clear that outside of Christ, we were dead in our sins, and dead people cannot respond to a call. Dead people cannot do anything, make any choice like that. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, which you once walked, Paul says. In 1 Corinthians 1, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's just utter absurdity, actually, when we're perishing. But to those who are being saved, or to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The saving has to start before we can see and experience the gospel as the power of God. And so the very first thing that has to happen in this process is God has to make someone who's dead alive. New birth has to come before we can make any response to Jesus. That's what Ephesians 2 talks about. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he's loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, dead, unable to respond, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. It's grace because it's before you did anything, he worked in your heart to bring there to be life. And of course, the classic explanation here is um, John 3, Jesus and Nicodemus, where the language of um, being born again comes from. So Nicodemus, this Pharisee, a Jewish teacher, comes to Jesus, and he's seen what Jesus is doing, he's impressed by it. He says, Jesus, we know you must be a teacher sent from God, given kind of the stuff that you're doing. And Jesus says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, as a wordplay, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Well, later he says the same thing, but he changes the word to enter. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, he says, unless you're born again or you're born from above. He's saying to Nicodemus, being a Jew, or just recognising that Jesus is a good teacher, or even recognising that Jesus is sent by God, isn't enough. Because you're dead in your sins. There has to be a radical internal transformation to be able to truly come into the kingdom of God. And he explains this then as being the work of the Spirit. He says, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. 
He said the wind kind of goes about all over the place. You can't see it. You don't see it coming. You don't know where it's coming from, but you know it's there by its effects. You hear it or you see the trees move, whatever. You see it's present because of what it's doing. He says the spirit is kind of the same in new birth. He's about, he's bringing new birth to people. And it's almost a surprise. You don't see it coming. You don't know where it's going to happen, but you know where it's happened because you see the evidence. You know where the spirit has worked in a heart because you see the evidence in it. That's what spiritual birth is like. And he says, no, the wind's going all over. You can't control it. Don't know what's going on. He's saying God's the same in spiritual rebirth. God starts his whole process. The spirit's around doing his work and we can't see him. We're not in control of it. He does it. He works in a heart. That has to happen first to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so in a sense, this regeneration, this new birth, is very closely linked to effectual call. They're kind of two sides of the same coin. Some people say the effectual call is kind of the conscious bit of your aware that happens because it's something of you, because of the effectual call, make the conscious choice to respond to Jesus. And that regeneration is the subconscious. It's an internal thing you're not kind of as aware of, which is maybe a helpful way of thinking about it. Two kind of different aspects of it, two sides of the same coin. So this is why statement number one, um, which was about salvation starting individuals' choice to trust in Jesus, I don't think it's true. Salvation starts with the choice of God, the call of God, and the rebirth that God works in our heart. And then again, there are really good, really encouraging, practical implications of this. It reminds us, these two things, that salvation is all a work of God. If God hadn't caused the effectual call to come to our hearts, if God hadn't caused new birth to be birthed in us, we wouldn't be followers of Jesus. There was nothing in us. There was no ability in us to make it happen. It's entirely of God. Again, it gives security. If the gospel came to us in such a way we responded, we know that God has chosen us. We know it came not just as the general call, as the effectual call. We know there was new birth in our hearts, and therefore we know he'll preserve us. He started something that he will finish. And again, it's confidence in mission. We know that as we proclaim the gospel, the general call, God will sometimes use it to bring the effectual call, to take hold of a heart. God will sometimes, the spirit will move and will bring new birth such that a person can respond to Jesus, such that the gospel will bear fruit. It makes our job easy, in a sense. We just proclaim, God is the one who works in the heart. God is the one who does the saving. Great, it's 10 o'clock. Let's stop there for our first coffee break and we'll come back to conversion afterwards. So in those first, uh, however many steps that was, one, two, three steps, we focused on what God does, that it all starts with God, and God has to do those three things, actually, before anything else happens. We now get to the next part in the sequence, which is conversion, which, in a sense, is where we actively get involved. This is about our active response, which flows from what God has done in those things we've already said. So conversion I've um, defined as our willing response to the gospel in repentance and faith. So when we hear the gospel and God works in us and the effectual call, and when he's brought new birth to us, then it is that we respond in repentance and faith. And that word willing is really vital in that definition. Because that fits in all the things we've said of actually God's control of all things at a very deep level. God's choosing of us then shapes our desires. Because the new birth has come, we're able to and we want to respond to Jesus. We willingly respond to him. And this response of repentance and faith, obviously, you find all over the place. Often you find both mentioned together. Sometimes you find only the one mentioned. Sometimes it's just repentance. Sometimes it's just faith. But in a sense, both are assumed. And it's another case where they're kind of two sides of the same coin. They need to come together to be um, truly those. And of course, Jesus himself called us to respond in this way. 
when Jesus first starts preaching, kind of Mark 1 15 and other places in the other Gospels, he announces the coming of the kingdom of God or the arrival of the kingdom of God and says, therefore, repent and believe. This is the, the response that Jesus calls us to. And both repentance and faith, there are different elements to it, three different elements and different, um, I guess, aspects of it. So repentance has a thinking and a feeling and an action element. In the thinking, to repent means to recognise what sin is, to recognise that it is a rebellion against God and kind of the sinfulness of sin. There's an intellectual consent and assent of, yes, this is sin and this is a problem. But then also there needs to be a feeling, there needs to be an effectual part of it that actually we have sorrow for sin and we get a distaste for sin. That we feel genuine sorrow for our rebellion against God and then actually the idea of continuing in sin is not as pleasing to us. There's this distaste, we don't want to do this stuff anymore. And then that leads into the action, that there's an active turning away from sin. And the kind of thinking, the feeling have got to happen, and then the, the action flows from that. It's an outworking of that. And all three of those are necessary to get the full expression of a kind of biblical picture of what repentance is. And repentance can and does, I'll come to a moment, in salvation happen in a moment, but the outward evidence sometimes takes a bit longer. If there's been true repentance, then the changing action will come even though not all of it comes immediately. It's an outworking, uh, kind of flowing over time sometimes, but it's the inevitable um, consequence of genuine repentance that happens. Yeah? Is it, like, theologically possible to de-repent or deconvert? Do you repent or deconvert? I... Sorry, what was the question? So the question was, is it possible to uh, kind of deconvent or de... Um, de-repent or de-convert, the phrase is used, which I guess is basically the kind of thing of can we lose our, at base is the thing of can we lose our salvation, which we'll come back to, no doubt, a few others. I think the answer is no, because of the nature of salvation. We'll actually find Romans 5 to 8, the very purpose of Romans 5 to 8 is to show you that you can be certain that if you're justified now, you will be justified on judgment day. So I think Paul has a very big theme in there about perseverance. Um, so I think there's two things. I think the Bible talks about the nature of salvation, what salvation is, even if that is this new birth, is so radical that it's not something you can go in and out of. It's not that you've had a spring clean, you need to get your spring cleans to be okay. Actually, it's you being totally reborn, totally uh, placed in Christ is the other kind of Pauline thing we'll find. You can't hop in and out of Christ, so you're secure. But then also, because of that, the Bible talks about the perseverance of the saints in the sense of actually the, the evidence that there was true repentance and faith is that actually on the big scale, on the long run, the person continues in, um, in faith and repentance. So I think if it's true repentance, it will continue that way, which isn't to say that sometimes people don't have periods in their life, which you know, we sometimes call backsliding, which maybe is not a helpful term. I think a genuine born-in Christian can have times like that, but actually God will bring them back to themselves and long term they can't. Can't live with that, I think. Then faith, on the flip side of the coin, again, has three elements. There's a thinking element of saving faith, about acknowledgement of the truth of the gospel and of God's standards. And uh, the thinking also includes a kind of trusting, trusting in God's promise to save. Then there's a feeling, then there's a heart orientation towards God. So repentance has this distaste from sin, a kind of heart turned away from sin, and the heart turns to God, that actually the greatest pleasure is found in God. John Piper is really big on this, and really helpful, I think. He says, no, to truly trust in Christ in a saving way is to treasure Christ as the thing which is greater and more beautiful and more satisfying than anything else. 
And then there's the active part. There's an active choice to seek to live God's way. So actually part of the faith response in the gospel is the faith that how God tells me to live really will be the best thing for me. And so it's an active choice to seek to, um, to do that, to live that way. And so biblical faith, actually, the, the better word in some ways, the easy word for us to understand is trust. It's about trusting in the promise of Jesus. And the Greek word kind of covers both. It's taking hold of this promise. I'm trusting that Jesus has said he will accept me based on what he's done. I'm, I'm holding on to that. That is the right response that we have to make. So conversion flows from <coughs> responding in repentance of faith, which is the inevitable outworking of what God has already done in new birth, the effectual call, which themselves are then rooted in, um, in God's election. And then we then reach justification, which when many people talk about salvation is actually what they're thinking of. They're talking of the, the real dealing with um, sins. Here, the, declaration I've, the um, definition I've given, God declares that we're in a right legal standing before him, or we are righteous. He sees us and treats us as if we've done everything we should have done and nothing that we should not have done. And this is all possible because of what has Christ has done. And so the legal declaration, God says, you're not guilty for stuff you've done wrong. And he looks as if you have done everything you should have done. And he's able to do that because of what Christ has done. It's a confusing doctrine. One of the reasons it's confusing is that English kind of gets in the way. So in English, there are two word groups that we have to use to translate the Greek that Paul and others used. Um, and they're incomplete word groups. You've got that table there you can see, which means we often don't see the links between words. So there's a noun for both um, words, or justification and righteousness. There's an adjective for both, of just and righteous, although for us, just isn't a very good translation sometimes of the Greek. Just, we tend to think it means kind of right and fair, but actually the kind of Greek is broader, righteousness, kind of right living is in there as well. But the big problem you'll see is that bottom right-hand box, there's no verb in the righteous word group, which means we talk about being justified leads to you being declared righteous, which sounds like two different things. But the thing you've got to realise is that justification and righteousness, it's the same word, the same concept. So we kind of almost need a verb, which is to righteous, you know, to righteous someone would better kind of help us see the links. And we'll get some things in Romans where actually we've got to realise <clears throat> these words look different, just and uh, righteous, but actually they're saying the same thing. And just being aware of when you read righteousness language, when you read justification language, it's the same thing is a very helpful kind of first starting point. And justification is a controversial doctrine. There are different views upon it. The Protestant Reformation, back in the five, uh, about 500 years ago, which you'll maybe know a bit about, was first and foremost really about justification. So a Protestant viewpoint is that justification is about a legal declaration. It's this definition I said that God, as the judge of all, he declares someone to be righteous in that right legal standing before him. And that isn't an unjust thing for God to do, because it's based on the work of Christ. It's the work of Christ that makes that a possible thing. His death pays the price for our sins, and his perfect life is credited to us so that we've done what we should have done. The Roman Catholic view, at, at least the traditional view, kind of pre-Vatican II, I think things are slightly more nuanced now, is quite different. The Catholic view is that justification is not a legal declaration, but that in justification, God infuses, so kind of squeezes in righteousness into us, 
which enables us to begin to live rightly, to live God's way. And over life, you do that more and more, and you get this infusion through baptism and then through the sacraments. And the idea is you want to have accumulated as much of this righteousness from doing the good stuff by the time you die. But if you don't have enough, which most people won't, you go to purgatory and the kind of uh, system continues until you have done enough righteousness to be righteous and then to enter eternity with God. So you see how that's a completely different thing. It's not God as judge declares you are righteous. It's God gives you some righteousness. He gives you the ability to become a better person. So there's lots of grace in Catholic theology. It's all by grace because God starts it. But a very different understanding of what grace is and how grace works. And so the conflict between those two views was part of what was at the centre of the Reformation and Luther and Calvin and others. But then also more recently, there's something called the New Perspective, or Perspectives, there's plenty of them on Paul, which ultimately is about justification, even though there's some other things. So if you're familiar with Tom Wright, he's one of the big names in this, and he's kind of the reason that on a popular level it's quite known about as well. And then people like um, Jimmy Dunn and others um, up in Durham, where I studied, are very prominent in this as well. The new perspective on Paul says that justification isn't uh, about a kind of legal status before God. It's not about God empowering you to live the right way. It's about covenant membership. It's about being a member of God's people. And in its simplest, simplest form, the, the new perspective on Paul says that before Christ, the kind of signs, the markers that you really were in the covenant, of, covenant people, i.e. the ones who will be saved and receive God's promises, were that you kept the law. And particularly, you were circumcised, if you were a guy, you kept the Sabbath and you kept the food laws. They were the kind of the evidences that you were a faithful member of God's covenant people. But the New Perspective says that what Paul says, actually, the transformation that comes of Christ is that those things are no longer that marker of being in God's people. Actually, faith in Jesus is the only thing which marks you out as being a member of the covenant people of God. And so they would say the big debate that Paul is engaging in, especially in Galatians, but also in Romans, is not whether you're justified by works or you're justified by grace, but actually it's about how do Gentiles become part of the people of God? Do they need to keep the works of the law as well as trusting in Jesus, or actually is trusting in Jesus enough? And so they think that most of what Paul is saying actually is about the fact that everyone can come to Jesus on equal footing, or come to God in the covenant people on equal footing through faith in Jesus, apart from the works of the law. There's all manner of problems with that, I think. What I think they've done, I think they've rightly isolated the historical situation. So the debate in the early church was primarily how can the Gentiles become part of the people of God not are you saved by works or grace. That is, a, to some level, a projection of Luther's conscience and of the kind of Protestant Reformation. But the answer Paul gives is the Protestant doctrine of justification by faith. It's not the new thing. So the, the situation is right, but actually the answer is much more complex than the new perspective guys think. Because actually Paul says, no, you don't get the severity of sin, and the issue was sin, and here's how God has dealt with that. We'll get back to this again in, in kind of Romans. But it's worth mentioning because... You will hear about the new perspective of Paul if you read stuff, because it's been made very popular by, by Tom Wright. So we want to ask the question, well, which of these three views is right? We obviously need to ask, what does the Bible say? The first thing we can notice there is that, biblically, justification is speaking of as a legal thing, as a kind of legal declaration. There's a range of aspects to its meaning, but all of them are, are legal elements. So, an example, Luke 7, 29 Jesus is talking to a crowd about um, John the Baptist, and he explains who he was. And those who had been baptised by John were told, when all the people heard this, the tax, and the tax collectors too, they justified God. 
they declared God to be right, i.e. God was right in what he said about John the Baptist. They justified him. They acknowledged, yes, he's in the right position, in a sense, because he told the truth. It's a, it's a legal declaration. And obviously, if they justify God, it can't be, you know, they infused righteousness to God or they said he's part of the covenant people. This can only be a legal thing. Or Romans 8, 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Clearly being justified is the opposite of being condemned. This is a, a legal declaration thing. Or Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus doesn't use the language of justification, but very much in context is the outworking of it. Justification is a legal thing. And actually the most helpful verse for understanding uh, justification actually comes from Proverbs 17.15, which says, He who justifies or makes righteous the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So he's talking here, um, Solomon, who wrote this, is talking about how human judges should act. What you're meant to do is to justify the righteous and to judge, condemn the wicked. And he says to do anything else, to justify the wicked or to condemn the righteous, actually is a complete miscarriage of justice. It's completely the wrong thing. And this is the point where you should be going, I can see a huge problem in the gospel here. What's going on? I, I taught this at home recently. We did a preach series in Romans. And our lead elder looked increasingly worried as I explained justification because he thought I'd gone completely off the rails. But we have to realise there are two types of justification and righteousness. There's ordinary righteousness, which is this, and there's extraordinary righteousness, which is what God does in the gospel. And that's where we're going to get to. So ordinary righteousness is a judge is meant to say, you've done the right thing, therefore you're righteous. So justification is meant to be an acknowledgement of what is already true. It's not meant to be a changing of situation. And actually, if the judge says, well, you've done the wrong thing, but I'm going to declare you righteous, that's a terrible miscarriage of justice. That's not how things should be. So this shows us some important things. It reminds us it's a legal declaration. That shows us that it's not about covenant membership. It's about what a judge does. And actually, it's interesting, righteousness language most often occurs in the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, which is the least covenantal part of the Old Testament. And that's one of the big flaws in the new perspective. They say righteousness is about covenant membership, but then you say, but righteousness is huge in the wisdom literature and the covenant just isn't. Righteousness is about a right legal standing before God. And there's clearly no evidence here that this is about an internal transformation. The judge, does, judge, the judge doesn't say, I'm justifying you and therefore I'm infusing righteousness into you so you can become a better person. It just doesn't work. So because the big problem is this verse says that a judge should justify the righteous condemn the wicked, but in the gospel, God justifies sinners. He justifies the wicked. Paul says in Romans 4, 5, he is him who justifies the ungodly. God does exactly what Proverbs 17, 15 says you should not do. It's a huge problem. What's going on? How can this work? And actually, we're going to find one of the key messages, Romans 1 to 3, is how it is that God can remain the just, righteous judge and yet be one who justifies, who righteouses sinners. And the answer is Jesus. The middle term in that equation, which kind of makes the equation balance, which otherwise should not be balanced and shouldn't work, is Jesus. God's justification of sin is he's declaring you are righteous, even though in a formal sense you weren't, is perfectly just because of what Jesus has done. There was this impossible situation that God faced, and the way he solves it is by sending his son. Because in his death, he takes the punishment for sin. And in his life, he lives the life we could never live. He is righteous. He is the one who it should be declared, you are justified, you are righteous. And that is given to us. 
And so God sends his son to kind of bridge that gap between what he should do and what he sends he wants to do. He enables himself to be able to justify the ungodly by sending his son. And we see Romans 1 to 3, a key part of it is showing, no, God is still just. God is still righteous. It's not a miscarriage of justice for him to save or to justify sinners because he's giving his son who makes the way in there. So Romans 3, 24 onwards is the key bit here. We're justified, Paul says, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. We're justified because there's redemption. There's a, a paying of the price in Jesus. There's appropriation. We'll come back to you. There's a paying of the price, an atonement, a, a making up for sin for us by his blood. And then he goes on. He says, this was to show God's righteousness. He says, the reason Jesus died was to show God's righteousness, to show that God wasn't unjust in what he was doing, because one, in his forbearance, he passed over former sins. So Jesus had to die because there were some people before Jesus who God didn't condemn for their sins, and that would have been a complete miscarriage of justice if it weren't for the fact that Jesus died. Jesus had to die because there were people God hadn't condemned for their sins. And two, it was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Jesus has to die so that God can be just and the justifier of sinners. He can be righteous and the one who makes righteous or declares righteous those who actually are sinners. Does that make some sense? How Jesus has to be the middle term to make this otherwise completely unbalanced equation works. That ultimately is what justification is, and we'll see it a lot more in Romans. The other thing to bring up on this topic, of course, is you might be thinking, I'm pretty certain I've read somewhere that a person's justified by works and not by faith alone. And how does that work? Because that's what Paul says in James uh, 2.24, which sometimes people think this just completely contradicts Paul. You know, they talk to each other, didn't they work this out um, together? Because uh, James, on the surface, has a very different view. Paul's adamant justification is by faith alone, not by works. James comes along and says, no, no, a person's justified by works, not by faith alone. And as always, the answer comes from reading carefully and reading in context. When you look at what James is doing in James 2, he's talking about or asking the question, can faith without works actually save? Is that really kind of um, enough in a sense? And he says, well, no, faith without works is dead. He's basically saying it is not real faith if there aren't works um, there with it. He says in verse 18, I will show you my faith by my works. So he's clearly not saying, yeah, it's works on their own. He says, actually, when you've got faith, you've also got works. And the outwork and the evidence of saving faith is the works that follow from it. And he uses Abraham as the example of this. Because he says Abraham was justified, was declared righteous when he offered his son Isaac. You think, okay, that's interesting. Because he offered his son in Genesis 22, but actually, it's well earlier in Genesis 15 that he trusts in God and it's credited to him as righteousness. So actually, in the text of Genesis, he's justified in Genesis 15, not in Genesis 22, which suggests that what James means is not that he was declared righteous when he um, offered his son as a sacrifice, but that he was shown to be righteous. It was the outward evidence, the proof of it. And that's the legitimate translation of the word. It can mean to make or to declare righteous in the moment, or it can mean to be shown to be righteous. In Luke 10, one of the classic times when people are testing Jesus as a lawyer, trying to test him out, and it's when he asked, the lawyer asked Jesus, now, what do you need to do to, uh, to be saved and for the kingdom of God? And God, Jesus talks about loving God, loving your neighbour. And we're told that he asked this, this guy because he was desiring to justify himself. 
I.e. he was designed to look good to the people around him and show that he was the one, really, who was right before God, not Jesus. He wasn't designed to earn a position or get a position before God. He was designed to show people his position before God. It's a perfectly legitimate use of the word. And so James and Paul are just saying very different things. Even though the words sound the same, uh, their meaning is very different. Paul's saying justification is received by faith. James is saying that justifying faith will always be accompanied by works, works which prove the presence of the faith. So the reformers had these wonderful uh, slogan that faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone which is a good summary of what Paul and James say. Paul says the first bit, faith alone justifies. James comes along and says, but the faith which justifies is never alone. So they're not contradictory, they're just saying um, different things in that. So justification, arguably the most important part of this doctrine, is that God declares that we're in this right legal standing with him. The declaration is you are righteous. That means he sees us and he treats us as if we've done everything we should have done, and nothing we shouldn't have done. And the first is really important. Some people will say justification is just as if I never sinned, which is a handy memory thing, but actually it's better than that. If it's just we haven't sinned, you've got back to zero, but you need more than zero. You also need to do the right stuff. And so it's more than just having it kind of the bad cleared away. It's also having the good put in. And all of this is possible only because of what Christ has done. If Christ hadn't died, this would be a terrible miscarriage of justice, and God would be acting completely against his character. But actually, Jesus is what makes it work. And then the final part in this uh, chain, the final one we'll do, is adoption. That God adopts us as his children so that we can be securing his love and become his heirs. And this is just astounding because God could easily and rightly and fairly have stopped at justification. Because that's already more than he has to do. There's no obligation upon God to save people. It was already more than we deserved that he saved us from the problem of sin. He could have just kind of left us in that and go off, you know, enjoy that now. But yet then he chooses not to just say go off. He chooses to welcome us in. He chooses to adopt us as his children, to embrace us as his own. Justification, in a sense, is the most fundamental part of salvation. But adoption is arguably the most kind of glorious, wonderful, mind-boggling part of salvation. And the witness of the New Testament right through is that anyone who trusts in Jesus for salvation, anyone who's justified, is adopted as his children. John's Gospel says it, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Paul says it, Romans 8.14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Hebrews implies it by saying in 2.12 that we are brothers of Jesus. 1 Peter 1.14 says it, as obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And later I think he talks about being holy as your father in heaven is holy. And John talks about it. See what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. It's right there in every one of the kind of key New Testament writers that we are children of God. And adoption in the ancient world was a, a legal reality. So an adopted child was deemed as much a child of the couple as any biological children they would have. Uh, just as it kind of is today. So this is a, a serious thing. I kind of point out, you know, it's not like today we have adoption of you know, a penguin or a tiger or an acre of the moon, which you pay your subscription, you have it for a year, there's no relationship, there's no security, your subscription lapses, you don't pay it again, it's all over. It's not like that. <laughs> this is permanent uh, bringing into the family, bringing into intimate, personal relationship, which can never be broken and never be changed. And there are loads of blessings and responsibilities, actually, that come with being a, a child of God. 
Lots we could pick out, but I picked out the four we'll find in Romans 8. Then actually there, Paul says, as children of God, we have freedom from fear. In context, the fear being fear of condemnation. We don't kind of relate to God as this harsh taskmaster or this kind of slave master who might get a bit annoyed with us and we might not quite do well enough. He might be a bit displeased with us and get angry with us and beat us up whether. No, he says, no, there's freedom from fear. We've no longer got a slave of fear, uh, 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 spirit of fear. And rather, he says, actually, we have intimacy. Rather, we have the spirit of adoption lives inside of us and by him, we cry, Abba, Father. Abba's like Aramaic for kind of daddy, papa. It's, it's the really close, intimate family word but whereas in English, it tends to be that daddy is used only by younger children, or mostly. Actually, this was used by adults as well. The kind of closest, intimate um, relationship there. And we become heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We are the ones who will inherit all the fulfillment of all of God's promises. The subjection of all the world, and we will rule over the world of Christ. And notice that we're co-heirs with Christ. And you see this later in Romans 8. That means we're brothers of Christ. We never talk about this, but this is one of the most astounding things. When we're adopted as God's children, we become brothers with Christ. That's like astounding stuff. And the last one, one we don't notice as you look at the four blessings of adoption in Romans 8, is suffering. Paul says an inevitable consequence of being a child of God is that you will suffer. He says you're a child of God provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified of him. Suffering is to be expected in the life of a child of God. It's not things going wrong. It's not kind of things going out of control. It's not anything like that. It's what it means to be a child of God. You will suffer. That's basically a promise. But there's purpose to this. It's in order that we might be glorified of him. Jesus shows us the pattern of how God works. There's suffering which leads to glory, and we get the same. And we'll see the entirety of the rest of Romans 8 is written to show us and convince us and persuade us that even when we face the most horrific suffering as children of God, we can still know beyond knowing beyond knowing that God loves us. That suffering never disproves that God doesn't love us if we are his child. We could look elsewhere. Adoption, it's interesting to look at Matthew's gospel. Matthew's gospel, the presentation of Jesus as the son of God is very much about Jesus being the obedient son of God. Actually, a key part of adoption is being obedient and uh, becoming like God. Sons are like their fathers. Uh, We're meant to become like God in it. There's all kind of different facets we could go to in adoption. But let's pause there. That is a whistle-stop tour of the doctrine of salvation and the order of salvation. Any quick questions on that? Yeah. Really good question, yeah. So the question is recording, was it the suffering persecution or is it kind of broader than that? In Romans 8, I think there's no indication that it would be limited to persecution. He talks in very kind of broad, general terms, I think, really. There's some place where it is, so if you go to 1 Peter, where the context very much is persecution. The suffering there seems to be primarily there. But I think places like Romans 8, even some of what Paul says in the Corinthian literature, I don't think... Well, it's a big theme of suffering and God's strength to make perfect our weakness and stuff. I don't think it's always clear that it is always persecution. So it's both and, I think. Persecution is part of it, but it's broader as well, I think. Good question, yeah. Anything else on these topics? Yeah. Might it be hard to convince somebody else who saw somebody with severe suffering that there is a God? Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, I think it might be. Um, yeah, we'll see, so when we get to Romans 8, we're going to see Paul gives three reasons why children of God can know that they are still loved by God, even in the face of suffering. But I think you're right, that probably wouldn't persuade a non-believer in a sense. Or the person who had been suffering, if they believed in God beforehand, 
when they severely define severely suffer, please, if you can. You say to me, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As an individual, um, from you to me, define severe suffering. Mentally, physically, spiritually. Not yeah, all of the above, I imagine, really. Anything that is suffering. I think, really, you know, in that situation, we're looking for the work of the Spirit. Actually, because ultimately, how do you know you're a child of God, even when everything around you is telling you it doesn't? It's because of what the Word of God says, but actually the way you know the Word of God is true is the witness of the Spirit. So actually, you know, Pastor, what we're looking for is, Holy Spirit, oh, please break through. And maybe this dear person, maybe this suffering has just led them to believe that actually you don't really love them. God, all we can do is, God, will you work, will you work, will you work? I think that's, I think that's the reality. Was there a hand? I'm here. Sorry, just going yeah. back to conversion. Mm. Um, you're talking about the three elements, thinking, doing, and acting. Where, where in there would you put conviction? Conviction, conviction of sin? Yeah. Um, probably under both thinking and feeling. Because I guess there's going to be intellectual acknowledgement of this thing is wrong and um, hurts God is not what God wants. But also I think conviction comes with a, I'm pained by that. Because you could think this thing is wrong, God doesn't like that, but I don't care. But so the feeling is also there in conviction. So I think those two would go together. Yeah. Cool, yeah, last question. Because my understanding is next time you meet, you do sanctification in 1 Corinthians. And at some point you do revelation and eschatology. Um, so I was quite grateful to not to need to do it somewhere. So yeah, there's more to come. It gets even better. It's great. Um, and we will cover some of both of those actually in Romans, inevitably.